The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Everybody, I'm David Frangioni. Welcome to a very special Happy New Year pop-up podcast with my co-host Billy Amendola featuring the one and only and January's cover feature, Mr. Steve Jordan. Welcome, Steve. Hey, guys. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Steve. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Even better now. Woke up to uh, Georgia being blue. I mean, come on. I feel good. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Well, here's the new issue. And um, we're proud and honored always to have you on the cover of our magazine. So and, um, you know, I, I listened to the Beat Odyssey a, a couple of times. And, um, you know, thank you for doing that, because you put the drums in the in the forefront, which is perfect for drummers. And even with DJ Mike and it's it's a pretty cool way to express yourself with just rhythms and drums and samples. Well, it was a very, um, it was a natural type of thing. It wasn't really a lot of premeditation involved. I started working with Mike uh, several years ago as the uh, musical director for the Emmys. Michael Bearden turned me on to Mike. I had known about, his work, you know, with the Beastie Boys and so on and so forth. Uh, but I'd never worked with him. And Michael had worked with him on a Kennedy Center uh, award show, which I was not involved in. This is after my stint with the Kennedy Center. And uh, uh, Mixmaster Mike was uh, the DJ on the Herbie Hancock segment. And Michael and said, man, you got to, you, we got to work with Mike because I had, uh, I had uh, implemented a DJ the year before in the Emmy orchestra and, and he was very good and everything. But when Mike said, oh, you should check out Mixmaster Mike. So I said, absolutely. So the first rehearsal, it was just so outstanding and, and Mike's energy uh, Mixmaster Mike's energy was so incredible and he was doing things that I'd never heard a turntablist do and uh, 
in in addition to his musical depth, uh, it was a match made in heaven. We just started doing stuff immediately, not like we had to work into it. It was like just add water and boom. Yeah, so, because you know we wrote a couple. Yeah, it sounds like okay. like you guys had fun. Like you hear the fun coming right out, pouring right out. The creativity, you know, like you say, it feels like you guys just clicked and then just started to play and then hit record and there you go. Yeah, that's basically exactly what happened. We were doing some work, I, I, you know, we, had, we were working in the orchestra and then, you know, write some cues. And then I thought, well, maybe Mike and I could come up with some cues for a couple of uh, video packages. And we did a few of those. And then we just said, why don't we just do more of this? And we just started doing it. And, uh, and we did some stuff over at Capitol. And then we found a nice little studio called Sage and Sound, which doesn't exist anymore. It went out of business this year. Somebody bought the building. It's tragic, actually, because it's a nice little studio. I think it was built in the early 70s or something. And it was just perfect. It, it was like a perfect studio for us. And... Chris Stephan was our engineer and he did an outstanding job and we just went in there and we started banging out some stuff. Um, we had done uh, a, a session before at Capitol with my friend uh, Frank Wolf as an engineer, uh, was a great engineer. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it just took off, you know, it just kept rolling. You know, that's all I can say. It just kept rolling. Yeah, and, it's very um, cool. It's very cool. And then all of a sudden we had all this music and we still made use some of that, you know, but it, it, it felt like a score, you know, it felt like, you know, like, you know, in fact, we had done a couple of uh, film cues for a film that, um, that never came to fruition, but, you know, that's how we were looking at it, you know, because it's all cinematic and so thematic. Yeah, there's there, there's and, a lot of there's a lot of color in in all of yeah, those. Yeah, it's a lot of color. Yeah, and, and it could fit into yeah. a lot of uh, you know, commercials, uh, TV spots, movies, without a doubt. And it's all drums, Absolutely. mostly all rhythm. So that's that's of course what our audience and what what we love. But the average person could also groove to it, and it's you know, it's it's. It's catchy enough with the samples coming in, musical samples coming in and out. It's cool. It's 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 very cool. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, is you know, when people hear it, they they, it's it's so visual that they they don't think of it as just drums or whatever. You don't even know what's going on. You know, it's it's like that, and that's how we looked at it while we were doing it. It was exploration, very much. You know, kind of how jazz is improvisation. And that's basically what we did. You know, we improvised and uh, not a lot of premeditated stuff. We would just say, you know, well, let's do something in this groove or let's do something with this BPM or I feel like this kind of vibe, you know, and, and, and most of the time we didn't even say that much, but right. you know, like, you know, you know, that's like the, the extent of our conversation. That's cool, though, because you, you can feel that, you know, you feel the energy, you feel the fun, you, you, you can see the creativity taking a path and, you know, flowing. It's cool. So let's, yeah. let's, I know uh, there was so much to cover. Ken McAuliffe did a fantastic job. 
Um, Ken, Ken is, is Ken is great, and I love talking with Ken, and I love the fact that Ken loved the record so much. It was fun to talk about because he broke it down, and he could hear certain influences and stuff, and uh, and that was a lot of fun to talk about, you know. Yeah, no, that was an excellent interview. But I know um, there, there was a we got a really nice letter from you that we're going to publish in a couple of issues down the line, uh, the next working issue. Um, but we wanted to just clear up one or two things. Right. We say uh, I think Ken thought you said Phil's music um, studio, but it's actually Bill's. Correct. Yeah, it was Bill's music rental. And Bill was great. I wanted to clarify that he was a great cat. Um, and uh, I worked for him when I was in high school, the high school of music and art. I would work in the percussion cage at Bill's Music Rentals. And Bill's Music Rentals was, before there was studio instrument rentals, there was Bill's Music Rentals. They supplied or, uh, or instruments, all the Broadway shows and the Ed Sullivan show and you know, you name it, they provided instruments and I worked in a percussion cage to maintain all the percussion instruments that were going out uh, to all the theaters in Broadway and uh, on Broadway rather. So um, that, that was, uh, it was a great uh, learning experience. I got to set up rooms. Um, that's how I met people like Dave Sanborn and the Brecker brothers and Idris Muhammad and Roberta Flack. And of course, that's where I met Stevie Wonder. So, wow. um, and so it was all, all of that. You couldn't, you, you couldn't pay me enough to work there. You know, what an education, you know. I was going to say that, you that know? was your schooling. That was your school. Yeah. It was unbelievable. It's kind of like, I always where, thought about, it was on 52nd Street, right across the street from where uh, uh, SIR ended up being. Wow. And uh, and in fact, SIR, that building at SIR, uh, it used to be a club called the Cheetah. And um, so I don't know if you, if you, uh, if any of your friends uh, that are older than you remember, uh, that was a very popular club with live music in the late 60s, early 70s, the Cheetah. And um, I think it went out of business probably around 72 or whatever. And then SIR uh, took it over and turned it into a, uh, you know, rehearsal state uh, complex and, uh, and music rentals. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and I know when you're doing interviews, sometimes, you know, it's, it's hard to, to get everything in and, and to think of everything, but there was a couple of people that you wanted to mention um, that had a huge influence on you that we didn't get a chance to uh, to give a shout out to. So do you want to give a shout well, out? You, you know, yeah, well, you know, when Ken was breaking down who he thought influenced certain beats or whatever, and that was really cool and that was a lot of fun. Obviously everybody knows what kind of influence Ringo uh, has on me. Um, it's, you know, Tony Williams and blah, blah, blah. But there were a couple of people that weren't mentioned that he, uh, that, um, are extremely important in my playing. And that's the great, the late, great Grady Tate, um, the great Albert Woody Woodson, who played with Otis Redding's live band for years um, and played on some of Otis's live recordings. Uh, he was a huge influence uh, at a certain point 
when I first really got into his playing, I didn't realize that he had influenced me before I knew who he was. Uh, he played drums on the Isley Brothers' It's Your Thing, which is a record oh, wow. that I played. I played that record over and over again. So I, I, I played the black off of that record. It was gray by the time <laughs> I was done with that freaking thing. Um, so anyway, it's a huge influence on me. And then, you know, right around the time we were talking about, uh, you know, toward like 1975, 76, you know, um, I met Steve Ferroni uh, when I was playing, you know, uh, at this club McKell's and, and he had come over with the average white band and I loved the way he played with AWB. And, and so I ended up playing in a band that he played with when he was in, in the UK. These guys, Dick Morrissey, Jim Mullen and Dick Morrissey, you know, there was a Scottish, Scottish connection with the guys from AWB and these two guys. And so they came over and I was playing in, in that band and we opened for AWB once in, um, in, in Central Park. I'll never forget it. Wow. And I played Steve's Gretsch drums and everything, but Steve is a great friend. And uh, I love the way Steve plays and he's carved out an amazing career, obviously. And, um, and so he was around and I, I loved the way he played. You know, one of the things I loved what Steve did, uh, he and Anthony Jackson and Hamish, when they played with Shaka Khan under Reef Martin's direction uh, and with some of Shaka's solo work, which was really fantastic. So um, I wanted to give Steve a shout out because I love Steve. Yes, yeah, Steve, um, Steve is great. And Al, you know, people like Al Foster and, you know, Ben Riley. Even I wasn't even a really a big Ben Riley fan that much until I started. Until I went back with Sonny Rollins, and I wanted to rediscover uh, bebop drumming in a way that was more unique. Uh, for uh, uh, just more kind of suitable for the for the role I wanted to play with Sonny. I've been playing with Sonny off and on for 30 years. And uh, when I rejoined Sonny in 2005, the band was Bob Cranshaw and Bobby Broom and Kamadi Denizulu and Clifton Anderson and Sonny. And we, we kind of came up with a sound, but it was when I really dug in, I went back to the woodshed and listen to stuff that I had listened to for years. And of course, Philly Joe, I listened to a lot of Philly Joe again and kind of rediscovered Philly Joe. But I love the way Ben Riley played with Monk and I wanted to implement some of that style, you know, and, um, you know, it's like Kenny Clark school, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and even Jimmy Cobb, you know, that kind of thing. Jimmy Cobb taught my late cousin, Jimmy Jackson Jr who died tragically uh, uh, from an asthma attack when, you know, when, he was, when his career was just taking off. And, and, um, but he was taught by, by Jimmy Cobb. Uh, so I used to always hear about Jimmy Cobb all the time. And of course we know Jimmy's legendary playing on Kind of Blues. So, um, you know, and people like that. And, and of course, Jack DeJanet has a, 
huge influence on my playing. And uh, there's so many people from Sandy McGee, even Cold Blood, you name it. I could go on and on and on, obviously, talk about Carlton Barrett. And, you know, there's, there's so who, many, who so is, many players. Uh, tell us a little bit about Mickey Roca, because I wasn't familiar. Oh, with God, Mickey. Mickey Roker. Oh, Lord. Mickey Roker's from Philly. Mickey Roker was one of the baddest drummers I've ever heard in my life. Oh, my God. He could swing. He and Bob Francher were very tight, and they had a serious pocket together. But Mickey Roker was bad, bad, bad. Um, he could swing. He had, he had some, he, he was funky. You know, he bought the funk and the bebop, you know, um, just a bad, bad cat. Played a lot with Milt Jackson. And, and the first time I met, the first time I saw Mickey Roker play, my dad took me to a Jazzmobile uh, concert in the summer in Harlem, right around the block from my grandmother's house. In fact, that was the day. All right, so I go, I was, it was my first day at Music and Art High School, and I'm supposed to meet the jazz instructor, uh, the person who's teaching a jazz band, and I'd never met anybody like this cat. You know, he had a crisp white shirt, um, these octagon glasses, some um, blue high water bell bottoms with bold white stripes and brown Chelsea boots, kind of uh, kind of floor shine Chelsea boots, square toe. I'll never forget how he looked. He was just he, cool. I he said, had, is this, he had a vibe. He had a vibe. He is such a vibe. He said, well, I'm saying like, who is this cat, right? So uh, later that day, I leave, you know, because that's when music and art was in Harlem. So on 135th Street in Convent Avenue. So I meet the cat and uh, and then I leave the school and go to my grandmother's house, which is 158th Street and St. Nicholas Avenue. My dad comes home, meets me there. Um, and then he takes me around to the block to see Dizzy Gillespie's big band. And you know, I'm a kid, I'm going right up to the front of the bandstand. I want to see what's happening, you know. And I see the drummer has some fives drums. It's the first time I ever seen fives drums. And they were this, the finish was like a kind of a, almost like a violet, um, kind of, Naugahyde suede type of finish. It was like this weird, I didn't even know they could do this with drums. It was wild. It almost looked like AstroTurf, like like violet AstroTurf, but it was like wild. And then I look up in the trumpet section and I see the, my teacher who I had just met that afternoon, I'd say, and it was Lee Morgan. So Lee Morgan was in, played with Dizzy's big band that summer. And that was the summer, that was the year he was assassinated. So I got to meet Lee Morgan. And that's when I first saw Mickey Roker play. Later, I became uh, friends with Mickey Roker. I, I, I met him a few times. Now, I wouldn't say we were friends, but acquaintances through the great Bob, the late great Bob Cranshaw. Um, and then, of course, um, 
another drummer that I didn't talk about because it wasn't really um, applicable to uh, this record, Beat Odyssey, but the greatest big band drummer of all time, which is Sonny Payne, who's a huge, uh, I mean, I just think he's the best, you know, I mean, I, the way he played with Count Basie's big band under Quincy Jones's two, uh, arrangements, uh, nothing like it, nothing like it. He doesn't get the credit that he deserves or he doesn't have the notoriety because he never had his own big band like Buddy Rich and Louis Belson and Gene Krupa and blah, blah, blah. But man, hands down, did, for my he money... He would have changed my, the world, man. His play oh, was yeah. so... I couldn't agree with you more. What an under underrated and an under acknowledged huge huge drummer he is in history absolutely i mean nobody was doing what i mean and besides these phenomenal unparalleled drum solos that you can google online which are just ridiculous forget about that if he never took a drum solo in his life the way he propels that count basie orchestra his sound, his groove. You talk about a pocket. Oh, Lord, this man's groove is so deep. And the way he pushes that band, oh, it's just, it's hard. It's, it's, it's really, you know, it's something. I, I, get, I get teary-eyed, you know, talking about Sonny Payne, you know. You know, so I'm so glad, Steve, I'm so glad you brought up his significance and importance because really there needs to be so much more awareness and so much more discussion and analysis and, and inspiration drawn from becoming aware of his playing because every you know everybody knows buddy everybody knows gene everybody knows louis everybody's got to know sonny he's on the same level as you said He's on the same level. I put him at number one because, you know, look, Buddy Rich was phenomenal. I got to meet Buddy. He was so sweet to me. Uh, it was unbelievable. Um, he was always up on who was, I met him when I was like 18, um, 18, 19. I just uh, gotten a job for Saturday Night Live and Frank Eppolito, who ran Pro Percussion, uh, you know, he would always have somebody in his office and he looked through the glass and if he saw somebody like he would wave him into the office and come in. There's usually Papa Joe Jones sitting in the office drinking a Heineken or something like that. And this day it was Buddy Rich and Frank saw me, he waved me in and Frank introduced me to Buddy. He said, this, this kid's the new drummer for Saturday Night Live. And Buddy said, I know, sounds good and everything. I just could not believe it. I was, I was in shock, you know. Um, Steve, how, how, you know, old were, how, how old were you when you started Saturday Night Live? You were, you were uh, young. 19. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, a lot of history. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you know, he, you know, Buddy didn't say I sucked, you know, so it was like, it was, <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that would crush somebody. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, he said, no, he liked the way I played. He knew who I was. I mean, it was crazy. But uh, yeah, it was, it, it was pretty wild, you know, but I love Gene Krupa's playing. I love Willie. See, like Louis Belson, I love Louis Belson's sound. I love Louis Belson. I think of all of those three drummers that we're talking about, Louis Belson had the best sound. He was playing Roger's drums at the time. His drums sounded impeccable. There was his tuning, the snare drum, the whole thing, beautiful sound. 
Buddy sounded to me like he never cared what his drum sounded like. <laughs> Actually, his drum touch, the well, drum he used, sounded to, he used mean, to say that. He used to say it wasn't about the drums. It was about the player. And I remember one time he came out on Johnny Carson with a folding chair and he just opened the folding chair and played on the folding chair and it was still great. Absolutely. He didn't, I've seen, you know, we've seen Buddy play on the Tonight Show numerous times playing different drums. And he always had a different endorsement. If he wasn't playing Slinger, he was playing Lover, he wasn't playing this, he was playing that, you know, it didn't matter what he played. But sometimes they just sounded like, you know, like obviously he didn't put a key to anything. Um, you know, he just like, he played whatever. It, sometimes it sounded like that, you know. And then Gene Cooper had a classic Radio King sound, you know, that kind of thing. It was a beautiful sound, you know. But Louis, to me, had the best sound of the three of them. But but on top of but but Sonny Payne's sound and his groove, everything to me was superior to all three of them. I mean, you know. So well, um, this is a good lesson. This Hopefully is a good get lesson. The recognition. And then, of course, I don't know one last thing of the article. I'm not really sure if Ken really talked about the influences of, of the, the, the James Brown greats, you know, William Bow, Dollar Bowman, uh, Nate Jones, of course, my friends, Clyde Stubberfield and Jabbo Starts. Um, and, and, and Melvin Parker, you know, so, um, incredible influence on me, all, all of those guys. And then, you know, of course we all know about what the influence Benny Benjamin had on me, but Uriel Jones and Pistol Allen had an equal effect. Um, sometimes I thought I was listening to Benny Benjamin, but it wasn't, it was Uriel Jones and Pistol Allen, you see. Because that's the whole thing. You don't know who played on what. You never saw the credits. You have to discern the stuff on your own. And then last but not least, the great Roger Hawkins, uh, who played in Muscle Shoals. I mean, Lord, I mean, the records he played. I get goosebumps when he played on Mustang Sally and on Land of a Thousand Dances. And, and the Staples and, uh, singles, right? I'll take you I'll, there. I'll take you there. You know, he and David Hood. I mean, Jesus, what a... What a bass and drum combination on that record, you know. So I, I a lot of people, I listen to a lot of people. I've, I've ended up becoming friends with some of my heroes, which is always a mind-blowing thing. But, um, you know, you these all of these people influence you until you come up with your own thing, you know, so. Well, I know, Steve, these names that you're that you're sharing with everyone who inspired you, I really encourage everybody listening to this and watching this to go out and check out, Google these names, go on YouTube, get listen and watch these drummers and these greats. You, you mentioned Sonny Payne's solos because his solos are unparalleled, but his, and his playing is on the same level of his solos. But you know, people just have no idea what's really there and what there is to learn from these guys until they go and check them out the way you did the way all three of us did here today by the hard way right because when right. i was coming up i was going to looney tunes in boston uh and you know and just going through whatever records they got in that day and having to discover things and going up to the guy at the counter and saying can you put this on so i can hear if i want to buy it or check it out or not or go absolutely to the library? I mean, this is like, you know, nowadays it's so easy 
to find these drummers and you're giving everybody the gold. Now just go and check them out. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, there's so many people to check out, you know, people, you know, I, I can, the list goes on and on. I mean, people like Gaylord Birch, he was a wonderful West Coast drummer. I love the way he played, you know, um, I mean, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I could be talking all day and all night about all the amount of players I listen to that that influenced me. So, um, yeah, no, I, like like David said, this is a great lesson because even myself, I, I learned about Mickey Roca. So, you know, now now I'm going to dive into him and yeah, I, absolutely. So be, before we go, I know. Um, Ken mentioned a bunch of songs that you played on, and you've played on so many hit songs and so many great songs that produce so much stuff. I mean, God bless you. Your career is, is, is just amazing. Um, but we did want to mention the Alicia Key, um, her big hit, if, if I Ain't Got You. Um, that was one. And then Don't Get Me Wrong, The Pretenders. That was right. another one that people... And then, and then one that I didn't even know, because I thought it was only Leo Adam in, on that one, was the, uh, the Escape, the Rupert Holmes Pina Colada song, which yeah. I don't agree with, but they say that that is the worst song ever recorded. It's like they did some poll one time, and they said that that was the corniest and worst song ever recorded, and I love that song. Well, here's a funny story about that. We, we, we tracked it to a different set of lyrics. The original lyrics were people need other people. Da, 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 da. That's what it was. So it was kind of like a hippie kind of love song, kind of, you know, like a thing. And then lo and behold, a year or two later, whatever the song <laughs> comes out, it's got a completely different thing. And it goes to number one. Um, <laughs> and it was just completely wild. And because uh, it's a it's a it's a freaking it's a story song. And it's a movie. It's like a yeah, movie. It's a, free, it's a like a movie. And I remember first time hearing it, and like, where's he going with this? You know what I mean? <laughs> Lyrically, you know, and why? You know, and you know, who knows what we would have played if the lyrics were different? You know what I mean? Who knows? But um, yeah, I remember the session well because it was at a, a studio that no longer exists. Um, in Radio City Music Hall. There was a studio upon like the sixth floor. Wow. And I think they used to do a lot of recording of, you know, when the NBC Orchestra played on a stage at, at uh, Radio City, they used to do a lot of stuff. So anyway, um, we recorded, the, the, the place was, you know, really on its last legs when we recorded it. You know, I, I think, I think that's how he got the time was like the, the the studio time was dirt cheap. So we ended up getting there. I remember it was like dust and cobwebs and all kinds of stuff. And um, and Leo and Damien had just gotten a new set of Tama drums um, because he really, you know, he was digging on the police and he liked the sound of the drums. So I had this kit. I never was, I, you know, I was just a kid. I didn't know, I didn't, you know, like a lot of the guys would send their trap cases around in New York, you know, they had two and three trap, you know, you'd see Chris Parker's trap case or Steve Gadd's trap case or Bernard Purdy's trap case. You know, they had two and three trap cases 
all over the city. So to go from one session to another, I didn't have a trap case. I would just play whatever was there. That was my thing. And sometimes there wasn't a snare drum. I remember doing a session where <laughs> they didn't have a snare drum because the drummers would bring their own snares and cymbals. So I would bring a cymbal, but never my own snare. So I had to do a session once with no snare drum. And it was like, fine. I was like, okay, let's make it work. You know, backbeats on the top time. Let's go. It's, it's the <laughs> 70s, you know. So at any rate, um, the drums that uh, were there at the studio um, were not very good. I mean, they, you know, they were not very good. So Leo, he was so sweet. He said, why don't you play my drums on this? I'll play the other kid. You play these drums because... I want you to play these drums. So I was like, okay, you know. So, yeah. So that was the first. And Leo, I, you know, and I played the, his Tama drums on the, on, the, on that you track. Know, Leo's another one who's very underrated. A lot of people don't don't know about <clears throat> Leo and Damien. I learned first of all, Leo and Damien. Uh, I learned a lot from Leo uh, outside of the drums, actually, um, but. Um, but he was the first person that I heard play live that sounded like he was in the studio. In <laughs> other words, the way he tuned the drums and the sound that he got from his drums sounded like he was in a recording studio, not like brash and weird sounding and whatever. And, you know, so basically, and I never forgot that. And that's why I do what I do it, it, it's evolved into that's what I do what I do when I play live and I'm switching snare drums or whatever, because it sets the tone for everybody, not only to the listener, but the people who are playing. I mean, right. you know, and it creates a sound that you go, you can identify with, it puts you in the mood, it puts you in the right place, it inspires you, whatever. And not only for me, but everybody else listening in the mix. So he was the first person that I really started getting into tuning very early because of him. I knew there were, there were sounds that I already loved. I've been, I've been collecting records since I was two years old. So I, you know, recording was my thing from before I even knew what recording was, but to see it actually implemented in person by a person, um, he was the, the first guy that I thought, Oh, wow. This is, that's int interesting. How do you, how do you do that? And that's when I started really going after sound. So Leo, Leo was, you know, was, was key um, to that, you know. Uh, well, shout, another, out, shout out to Leo. See, he's yeah. another person everybody should, should, should check out. I think we're going to have Leo on eventually. That'd be great. That'd be great. Cause he did a lot of stuff. There's a, and there's another, you know, he was playing with Robert Palmer at one time yeah. in his road band and, a lot you know, of people don't not, not not familiar with him. Yeah, another another drummer that a lot of people aren't familiar with who's a huge influence on me too was Funky George Brown from the original Cool in the Gang. Right. I love Funky George's playing. He's still in Cool in the Gang, but he hasn't played drums in years. He plays keyboards in Cool in the Gang now. So, kind of like how, um, you know. Uh, Johnson uh, from Earth, Wind, and Fire became stopped playing drums and, and they 
they oh Ralph. Yeah, Ralph, 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 yeah, yeah, you know, did he and, play on and, Jungle? And Freddie White, I mean, talking about, about drummers in Earth, Wind, and Fire, I mean, besides the great Maurice White, who played as a studio musician in Chicago, you have Ralph playing, but then when Freddie White joined, I mean, I love Freddie White's playing, I mean, if anybody doesn't know who Freddie White is, you need to check out Donny Hathaway live and hear the combination of Freddie White and Willie Weeks, and that'll that'll change your day. Wow. Well, we could we could definitely go on forever and ever, and, well, uh, and, we, and we will actually. We're gonna have Steve back because there's just so much to catch up on and talk about. And Steve, you've been an inspiration since I since I heard you and saw you with the Blues Brothers. And uh, from from literally day one, man, just the energy and the the tastefulness and the pocket of your playing combined with incredible chops and and musical ability all the way to last year, I get the deluxe reissue of Talk is Cheap. And it's like, (laughs) so everywhere I go, I'm being inspired by you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah. that was a fun record to make. I really, you know, that's, that was a a really important, uh, period and it goes on today because i love keith and um and uh you know he's like a big brother so that's great yeah there's some talks about maybe putting uh that band back together right well you know we'll see what happens i mean you know with this situation going on and and you know obviously the stones are going to be touring so we'll see what uh, time will tell but uh but keith and i are always in contact and making music one way or the other and one last thing before we go, How, how's Megan and what's happening with the Verbs? We're going to hear a new... Uh... We are working on Garage Sale, which will be our fourth album. I'm very excited. Um, she's writing up a storm as usual, um, but it's going to be a raw experience. And um, I'm really, really excited about it. JV Records has some good product coming out this year. So I'm very excited. Garage sale. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. Everybody check this out. Look up those names that we were talking about today. And that's a lesson in itself. Steve, as always, thank you so, so much for taking the time. I know how busy you are. We'll see you sometime soon, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.